the kids run out and we take our offering, let me uh, just say to the MEP team and to Pastor Jeff, man, praise God for what uh, he accomplished through you guys down in the DR. And Jeff's been doing these trips for 20 plus years and uh, just constantly getting teens out to both locally, regionally, globally. And uh, many have, this has stirred a flame in them to go into missions, vocational ministry full time. And it's our prayer that even uh, one or two of you, maybe perhaps God has put something in your heart that will not go away and that you will seek to do something further for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. Um, So praise God for that. Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah 6, you'll find that on page 571. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use a blue pew Bible in front of you. We always, each week, want to show that um, anytime somebody stands up here, he's opening his Bible. And anything I say is not my thoughts. This isn't me being creative throughout the week. This is God's word going out to his people on a week-to-week basis. And so I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles with us. Um, This morning we're beginning a new four-week series, and it's a series on the church's vision that we do every single year in the month of September, Um, and this year we're calling the series Blueprint, Christ-Centered Worship, Community, Service, and Mission. And so just a a minute on why do we do this, right? Why has this become now an annual rhythm that we keep coming back to, that we will continue to keep coming back to as long as God allows us to is Um, While it is true that over the past year there are several new people at Grace Church, just praise God for that, and and to be able to you just kind of see in a sermon series kind of what our vision and mission is, um, it's not just for people that are new. Uh, that this series is as important for those who have been in Grace Church maybe your entire lives including our staff and our ministry leaders, that we constantly need to keep coming back and being reminded, why do we do what we do? Okay, so if you were to take a tour across the country and just ask churchgoers, hey, like, why do you go to church? Like, if somebody were just to ask you, if I were to give you the mic and you'd start freaking out and be like, hey, why do you go to church? Tell us why you go to church. I think we might be surprised at some of the answers we would hear. I think often you might hear, well, Church is, I've always kind of done it, and it's just a great start to my week. It makes me feel good to be in church. Okay, I, I, I don't think it's wrong that church makes you feel good. Hopefully it does. Praise God if it does. But, but it's not the primary reason you should be here. Or you might hear, um, well, I want my kids to be brought up with good values, and so it seems like church would be a good place for them to, uh, for that to happen. So that's why we come. Our kids have the ministry, great ministry happening downstairs, down the hall, We want our kids to be brought up with good values. Okay, yes, amen, your kids will learn good values while they're here, but that's not the most important reason why they're here, and it's surely not the most important reason why you're here while they're here. I think often the motivation is that we want God on our side in life. And if I just show up to church enough, he'll be sure to make me prosperous and healthy, and he won't allow the bad things to happen to me. Um, Maybe we wouldn't like verbally say this, But we often can see church and being a part of a church as a way to keep God in check. Like, like keep the good coming, keep the bad away. I I go to church. And I think we could go on and on. Point being, there's a whole lot of reasons why you may be here. And listen, um, whatever the reason is, praise God, like, you're here. But there's one good reason, like, one great reason that you should stay. I'm not talking about just Grace Church. I mean, if you're not from around here, if you're visiting, um, why you should just be involved in a church that preaches the Bible. 
One great reason. And, and as a community, each year, we need to just zoom out and be reminded through God's word why we do what we do. Why being part of a church, not just like going to church, but being part of a church body is the greatest, most cosmic purpose you could have. Because on the flip side, if we were to tour the country and ask um, all non-churchgoers, hey, what do you think about church? And what do you think about church is? Um, spoiler alert, it's not very good. And in the next four weeks, we're going to delve into the blueprint of Grace Church, the, the design plan on how we seek to be faithful to the commission that Jesus casted out in Matthew 28 when he said, go and make disciples. Go make followers of me for our joy, for the good of the world, and above all, for the glory of God. So God's answer to reach the world, to restore the world, is through the church. So Grace, how, how are we going to play our part in that? Four distinctives, four pillars that we have rallied around, and we're going to spend one week on each. Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered service, and then Christ-centered mission. And, and my prayer, man, my prayer all summer and all this past week is that our hearts would be stirred, that our vision would be clear, and it would raise up an army of believers that are going to reach the world with love and truth. So this week, Christ-centered worship. And let me just give you the major point up front, all right? If you just want to check out for the next half hour, check out. Here's the major point, okay? Um, Christ-centered worship always begins with seeing God and flows out of experiencing his grace. And it is vital for the effective witness of God's people. There it is, major point, three parts, all out of Isaiah chapter 6. Um, so a little background on Isaiah. He is one of the major prophets in Scripture. He wrote his account over a stretch of about 60 years it took him to write. It is a long book. It is a difficult book to read. And let's be honest, just over the first 39 chapters, you might slip into depression. It, is, it, it, is, uh, it draws out just the unfaithfulness of Israel and Judah, and it's just warning after warning in graphic terms that God will purify through judgment, just as he always has and just as he always will. But then you get to Isaiah 40. Man, thank you, Jesus, for Isaiah 40. My favorite chapter in the entire Bible because it's this shift after 39 chapters of warnings and judgments and just unfaithfulness, there is this shift to just proclaim God as God. Like, read Isaiah 40 tomorrow morning. He is sovereign. He has this overruling purpose of grace and of restoration and of hope. And that theme just continues through the end of the book, which is 66 chapters long. And after the first five chapters of giving just kind of a little introduction, a little taste into his ministry, Isaiah stops and he stops to speak of how this all began, how God called him to be a prophet. And this happens in the year 740 B.C., okay, like 2,700 years ago. And he says, he starts, this is the year King Uzziah died. It's not just to provide the setting, but it's an important detail in Isaiah's call. Because listen, because of our Bibles, we know a lot about our boy, King Uzziah. Okay, 2 Chronicles 26 recounts his time as leader over Judah. He became king at age 16. 
and he reigned for 52 years. Okay, can you imagine being king at 16 years old? Like, just take a moment now, just think about your 16-year-old self. What were you doing at age 16? I was struggling with my geometry homework, all right? I, I, was, I, was, I just had gotten a job for the first time. I, I couldn't shave my face without bleeding yet, all right? I hadn't quite figured it out. That was me at age 16, and our boy Uzziah just became king. But here's the thing. It went really, really well for a long time. Uzziah was one of the most successful kings Judah ever had. He did right in the eyes of the Lord. He was powerful and he was innovative. He won every single battle he was in. He was creative. He was an inventor. He built up the most powerful army Judah had ever seen since the days of King David. Like, Uzziah was the Steve Jobs of kings. All right, like he was 10 steps of everybody else and all his competitors, and everything he did just turned to gold. He could do no wrong. He could invent nothing wrong. Like you wanted Uzziah to be your leader. His approval rating was in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? Like we tracking like three times the amount of our probably current president, all right? Like everybody was down with Uzziah. But just as quickly as we read of his success, I want you to just follow along on the screen as we read 2 Chronicles 26, verses 15 and 16. This is talking about Uzziah says, in Jerusalem, he made machines. Like, what did machines look like in 740 B.C.? I don't even know. All right, he, in Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. All good, right? Wrong. Because <laughs> then you get to verse 16, and we read this. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. It got to his head. He got big in his own eyes. He thought he could do no wrong. And so what Uzziah wanted, he wanted to be the one who would go into the temple and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Because after all, he's King Uzziah. Like, look at all he's done for the Lord. Of course he should be the one to go do this. But the problem is, that clearly it's outlined that this is a job only to be done by priests who go through a whole process of being ceremonially clean so they could approach the throne. And so he walks into the temple and the priests warn him. They're like, look, Uzziah, this is not God's design for you to do this. This is a job given by God to the priests. And, and this made Uzziah angry. Like, how dare these little puny priests tell me what to do? I'm King Uzziah. And he goes and he just does it anyway, and in that moment, God strikes him with leprosy. He became big in his own eyes. He failed to recognize the holiness of God. He thought he could just casually stroll before his creator. And Uzziah would never recover. Uh, leprosy in the ancient world is like getting stage four cancer and not getting treatment. It's a death wish. And so Uzziah died. And his death would be the end of a 52-year-long reign of prosperity for Judah. And that is the backdrop behind Isaiah's call. So maybe you're wondering, what the heck does this have to do with worship? Well, let's read along with me as we read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one, another, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke Verses 1 through 4. Here's why we're going to talk about worship today. First, Christ-centered worship always begins with seeing God. So Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord. And a phrase that reoccurs over and over again throughout this book, it's the only book this is in, is the phrase, high and lifted up. Like God is holding court. He is in command. He is on the throne, and he always has been. Since the moment he said, let there be light in Genesis 1, God has been on the throne. And so you see the contrast right up front. Israel's calling out, uh, Isaiah's calling out to Judah. He's saying, listen, King Uzziah is dead, but God's alive. Psalm 90 proclaims from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he's not hiding. And he's not covered. He is high and lifted up. I found it interesting. I didn't even know until this past week that this is the only place you see the phrase high and lifted up in relation to the Lord. Because for me, I've like adopted that phrase just in the past year or two where my prayer every single Sunday morning, I come into this room when it's early and it's empty and it's dark. And my plea before the Lord is, Lord, this morning in this service, you be high and lifted up. Like, God, that you would be the one high and lifted up, that when we leave, we're not thinking about the music, although praise God for the music. And we're not thinking about the preacher. We're thinking about and marveling about God who is lifted high for all to see. And Isaiah sees the seraphim. Another thing, we, the, the word seraphim, you won't find it elsewhere in the Bible, although similar like creatures are explained in Revelation, but they're not given that name. But we know that they're a special group of angelic beings that surround the throne. That they are six-winged creatures that surround the Lord, and they are fiery. Like, I think sometimes when we see depictions of the throne and of God's angels, like, I think we get the wrong picture. Because often what gets depicted are these kind of fluffy, feathery, winged creatures that you're pretty sure you could beat in an arm wrestling match. But, like, there's nothing fluffy about this description of these creatures. In fact, what we just read in verse 4 is that when one of them spoke, the foundations of the temple shook. They have six wings, two to cover their eyes, because even they cannot gaze upon the glory of the Lord. Two, to cover their feet, to display their lowliness before the Lord. And then two, to fly with. And they call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Church, worship begins with seeing God. And it occurs when we confront his holiness. 
holiness, a word that, again, if you're a church going, if you've been around a while, like you hear the word holy, it doesn't really maybe do a whole lot to you. Maybe you've heard it so much, it just kind of glosses over you. But words will always come up short to describe God. And the word holy is one we find on repeat throughout the scriptures. It's the central theme to the entire book of Isaiah. That holiness is infinite purity, infinite majesty and power. It's the separation of God in all his being, in all his thoughts, in all his ways. Like he is incomparable. There is no equal. And there is an infinite difference between creator and his creation. And that distinction, this creator-creation distinction is the foundation of which all doctrine rests upon. Like, he is one of a kind. He is in a class by himself. He is the God who is. There's no higher reality that God must answer to. There's no higher reality that he's got to conform to. He is great. He is absolute. He is divine. Like, do you see what I'm saying? When when you speak of God's holiness, the language runs out. It's not until you reach the end of any way you can describe him that you get to the beginning of who God is. This is our God. One God in three persons, holy, repeated throughout the scriptures three times to signify his triune nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And listen, this is the holiness that Uzziah failed to recognize when he got big in his own eyes. And so when we think about the blueprint for for who we are and what we build upon as a church, it begins with God. So the answer to the question, why are you here this morning? Um, Because God. And after, after reading this, like where else would you want to begin? Worship is not primarily about what we do, it's about who God is. And it's not until we see God that we're able to do it, for a heart that truly sees God can't help but erupt in praise. Let's read where this goes, verses 5 through 7. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Second, Christ-centered worship flows out of experiencing grace. Uh, if, if, if this is the first time, and maybe perhaps it is this morning, that you're hearing this passage read, I think um, the direction it just went might surprise you. Because at first, as we read it, it's possible, maybe even probable with our ears and our modern minds to think, wow, God is giving Isaiah a glimpse of himself. Like, he must be pretty pumped about that. Like, like how lucky is he? He gets to see God. I want to see God. Because I think our minds, again, they go, to, they go to somebody unbelievably famous. Like if you got a glimpse of somebody famous up close, or you had maybe a chance encounter with a celebrity, you would think, man, this is awesome. How lucky am I? How much awesome would it be then to see God? But maybe it wouldn't go that way. So this past summer while I was on vacation, I heard a, um, a pastor tell a story about his daughter. Uh, 
her, his daughter is married to a man who works for an NBA team out on the West Coast called the Portland Trailblazers. And so every summer, um, he is always in Las Vegas, because if you know anything about the NBA, you have the summer league in Las Vegas for about a two or three week stretch, um, where all kind of the younger players, the newly drafted players, kind of have an opportunity to showcase themselves um, in front of all coaches and GMs, and so everybody NBA-related just descends upon Las Vegas for about a two- or three-week stretch um, in the summer. And while she was there, um, by the way, she hates sports. That's the best part about all this. Like, so she's just up close and personal with all these like, celebrities, and she like, doesn't give a lick about sports. She just wants to go on a trip with her husband. One day, she was underneath the arena, and she gets on this elevator alone and starts to go up towards the main floor of the arena and then all of a sudden the elevator stops. It opens up and in walks LeBron James. And now it is her and LeBron James standing together in an elevator. Like she might not know about much about sports, but she knows LeBron James. And it's just the two of them in an elevator. And here's the thing. He, here's why I found interesting. Here's why he was talking about this. Her first thought was not, man, this is awesome. Like, she's not trying to strike up some small talk with LeBron. She's not pulling out her phone and trying to get a selfie like we probably would like idiots. Right? She's not looking for an autograph for any of her kids. You know what her first thought was when he walked in? Oh, no. I probably shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. I must have gotten on the wrong elevator. I'm going to get in trouble. My husband's going to yell at me. I just messed this whole thing up. I should not be here. And she, she froze and did not say a word. In the same way, while we may think that this is Isaiah's lucky day, he just got to see God on the throne. It goes the other way. And it goes back to Isaiah recognizing the holiness of God. Isaiah says, I'm lost. Oh, like, oh no, I've just seen the Lord in all his glory. I've come face to face with the king who is high and lifted up. I can't be here right now. Because remember, it is fresh in Isaiah's mind why Uzziah was struck down by God. An earthly king that had become large in his own eyes thought he could just waltz into the temple and offer sacrifices without going through the process of being ceremonially clean. And it didn't end well for Uzziah. And if that happened to Uzziah, like this fearless longtime leader of Judah, how much more is Isaiah in trouble as someone who's just a nobody? And so you notice Uzziah gives no defense. He doesn't try and fake it. Because all has been exposed before the Lord, for he knows God is light. And just as a stream of light exposes dust on furniture, so the glory of God exposes the guilt of man. Okay, so one more story. Um, growing up, I was the youngest of four brothers. And we all had a list of chores to do around the house. Okay, youngest brother, I was the duster. Seemingly easy job, like Aaron, rag spray, just go dust for a couple of hours around the house. Like, brothers had cooler jobs. I was the duster, all right? I don't think I ever even graduated from that. Um, but listen, I always hated when inspection time came. Because my mom was smart. She had four boys. She would always inspect the room when a stream of sunshine would be pouring into the room. 
and it exposed just how bad I was at dusting. Like, you could clearly see in the sunlight, like, my laziness. So there'd be, like, one swipe down the middle. There'd be, like, dust on this side, dust on that side. Just, like, that one swipe. And my mom would be like, you're kidding me, right? Like, like this, is, this is what you did in every single room. And I'd be like, it wasn't fair. Like, the sun wasn't streaming in then. I didn't know. It looked really clean when I did it. It's in the presence of light where blemishes show the most. And God, in all his radiance and perfect holiness, There's no hiding it. There's no point in even trying to fake it. The Bible says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There are no works that we can do to impress a perfectly holy God in such a way that he can save us because of what we do. Listen, nobody can stroll right before him and just be like, hey, what's up, God? You you and I are good, right? That whole thing, that's not, that wasn't really a big deal, right? Like, you, you, me and you, we're good? There's only one way this is going to end well, and it is the reckless, radical grace of God. So I want to, with that backdrop, just read 6 and 7 again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for Worship, worship comes not by thinking that God is small and he's weak and we can just approach him carefree. It occurs when we realize that the holy God of the universe, high and lifted up, chooses by his grace to take our guilt away so that we can be restored before him. For Isaiah, the remedy of grace is applied as a burning coal that came from the altar of sacrifice. It was placed on his mouth, and he was told, this is enough. It was sufficient and effective. And as we see in Isaiah 6, God's grace does not offset God's holiness. The two are held in tandem, and where they meet is where worship occurs. Okay, but maybe you're listening, you're going, wait a minute, pastor. You just spent however long boasting about the holiness and perfection of God. So how can someone who is knowingly unclean just come before him now and be innocent? Like, that's not right. There's no justice there. That's madness. And it is here, church, where we insert the Christ in Christ-centered worship. For without the sacrifice of Christ at the center, there is no worship. Isaiah trusted that God's remedy was enough, even though he didn't know how God was able to do this. But church, we know how. This holy, perfect Father sent his own eternal Son, Jesus, to take on flesh. And as Hebrews 9 says, he became the sacrifice himself. The only way to be saved from God's wrath is to, be, is to believe in God's Son. The one who took that wrath on himself so that God's chosen people may be free. At the center of a holy God, there stands a gracious God. And it is at the cross of Jesus Christ, which is why Grace Church is built upon, and, and this foundation is built upon Christ-centered worship. Without Christ, there is no worship. 
It is central for those who have been saved by God's grace through faith, where we repent of our sins. And if you think about conversion, you think about conversion, really what it is, is a reorientation of worship, where we repent of our sin and we turn from worshiping idols to worshiping God. To be a Christian that is walking before the Lord, it includes behavior, it includes what you're doing, but it always begins with worship. In the long run, behavior will always follow worship. Listen, I will always do and follow what I love most, and so will you. When someone asks if you're a Christian, hey, are you a Christian? The primary evidence that you are is not some moment in the past when you made a decision, when you raised a hand, when you said a prayer, when you got dunked underwater or sprinkled upon. The primary evidence is that right now, currently, you love the Lord and you trust in him with all your heart and you're walking in his ways. Um, John Piper puts it best when he said, I, I don't know I'm alive because I have a birth certificate. I know I'm alive because I'm breathing. Church, are we breathing? Have we experienced the grace of God in such a way that it fuels Christ-centered worship? Is your heart stirred for him? I'm not asking if you're perfect because I'm far from perfect. But it means that you're a disciple. You're an active, present follower of Jesus. Let me ask you, is that true of you personally? Is it true of us corporately? Because you see, what worries me about Western, culturized Christianity is this kind of silly game we play, where it becomes more important to appear worshipful, to make others think we're worshipful, than to actually be worshipful. Like, listen, if there is one message I could go back and tell my former spiritually immature self, it's this. Acting like your soul is stirred for God is a terrible substitute to actually being stirred for God. Like, it sounds silly even just saying that, but we do it all the time. C.S. Lewis puts it like, hey, you're, you're choosing to play around in a puddle when you're right next to the ocean. Worship flows out of experience the grace of a holy God. Okay, let's finish up with verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Third and last point, Christ-centered worship is vital for the effective witness of God's people. Verse 8 exemplifies the fact that receiving the grace of God, it doesn't just end with us. It moves us towards action so now that grace can flow through us. Like true worship, true worship moves. It is alive. It steps outward in missional action and it says, here I am. Send me. For Isaiah's sake, it meant answering the call to be the mouthpiece of God to the nation of Judah. To warn them of coming judgment. To call them to repentance. And then finally, to promise them of a future delivery and hope. The fruit of his witness, the success of his witness, that's going to be up to God. 
But the faithfulness of his witness, that's up to Isaiah. Let me say that again. The fruit and success of what he does, that's up to God. But the faithfulness, that's up to Isaiah. In fact, God would go on to tell Isaiah that your job, Isaiah, is to preach to a people who are not going to listen to you. And actually, their hearts are going to be hardened even more by your faithful witness. Like, who wants that ministry? Like, you're going to go, you're actually going to make things worse. You're going to close that church down. All of a sudden, like, the here I am, send me, like, that doesn't get put on coffee cups anymore if that's where it's going to go. But Isaiah's answer to the call wasn't because he thought Isaiah was going to be high and lifted up. It was the result of seeing God high and lifted up and experiencing his grace. It was worship that fueled mission. For true worship will always fuel mission. The result of faith is always a willingness to go and make disciples. This is the call on my life. This is the call on everybody who believes in Jesus Christ's life to go. And there is an infinite amount of ways to do so. It it doesn't mean everybody has to enter vocational ministry or go enter the vocational mission field. But it does mean that every single Christian views their life and their surroundings as their own mission field. The places in which we live and we work and we play now become the ground in which God has called us to go and reach. Moving us towards action is the evidence that God's people are centered on Christ. So church, as we close this morning, our call is to go. To answer the call. And our model is Jesus himself. And how amazing is it that we now get to play a part in bringing forth the kingdom of God that he started and he will finish. This means we treat physical need where we see it, as Jesus did. We support the least of these. We do what we can to physically help people in Ridgewood and in Patterson and in Houston and in Florida and in Mexico and on and on and locally and regionally and globally where we take seriously the call to be the hands and feet of Jesus. This means we work to fight against immoral systemic structures as Jesus did. And we get to play a part in fighting back against systemic racism which is alive and well against economic injustice, against, uh, against injustice in the school system, which is alive and well. And above all, we get to treat the spiritual need by sharing and revealing the gospel. The good news and calling people to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Jesus did. And the key to all of that is worship. A heart that worships A church that engages in Christ-centered worship will go. And you might hear all that and go, that seems overwhelming. We're just a little church here in a community church in Ridgewood. That seems undoable. Without Christ, it is undoable. But with Christ, we are equipped and empowered to say, here we are. Send us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how week after week we are able to open it up and be reminded of your love for us, your reckless grace on our behalf, and the purpose that you've called us to, Lord. So many people in this world are searching for purpose 
And how blessed are we that we have it right in front of us. That we get to open up your word each week and see you. That we get to experience the, the, the grace that saves and that we answer the call to go. Father, let that be true of Grace Church. And let it be for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.